and let me ask the rest of you please to open your Bibles with me this morning to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, as we continue our study through the gospel according to Mark. The Pharisees and the scribes come back on the scene and they've got another bone to pick with Jesus. This time it's a question over what really defiles a person. The scribes and Pharisees seeing as as what's outside of you, but Jesus explaining it as what is inside of you, as we have already so clearly sang about this morning. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23 is our passage for this morning. Before I read it, I just want to point out to you, there are a couple of manuscript variations here, but I want to point out to you one thing that you may or may not notice. Some of you have a Bible like mine that's actually missing verse 16. Others of you have a Bible that includes verse 16. If your Bible jumps like mine from verses 15 to 17, then you most likely have a footnote that at the bottom tells you that some manuscripts add verse 16, which says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Textual variants happen. It doesn't change the meaning of the passage itself. You can imagine our English Bible has come to us through tradition, or rather translation, that has been handed down. Copies were made of what Mark originally wrote. We don't have any of those original copies anymore, or rather his original writings, but what we have are the copies of those things. And so sometimes as people copied those down, they would include something or exclude something. So the best manuscript evidence that we have to date probably says that that verse 16 if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, shouldn't be in there. It's not original to it. However, if it is in there, it changes nothing about what Jesus says, nothing about what Mark means. In fact, it really connects it back to chapter four, the parable of the sower and the seeds, which uh, has ramifications all over Matthew, Mark chapter seven. And so if you, like me, are confused about why your Bible jumps from verses 15 to 17, Now you know why. So my Bible does not include verse 16, so you'll not hear me read that, uh, but yours may, so just drop your eye down to verse 17. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23 says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, 
that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that, are, that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the clarity of your teaching. We confess that we sometimes, maybe more often than we want to confess, can relate with the disciples, not completely understanding everything that you have said. Yet we're so grateful, Lord, that you are our teacher and that you have sent your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Just as he guided the apostles into all truth, he now helps us to illuminate the truth of your word. Lord, as we approach this passage, this profound passage, this passage that tackles not just the problems that the Pharisees and the scribes had, but the enduring problem that all mankind has outside of Christ. The problem of thinking that the problem is outside of us rather than realizing that the problem is actually inside of us, that the problem is us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this revelation and we especially thank you that you transform the very thing that causes our problems, our wicked hearts. Lord, I ask that as you have, as you oversee and look upon this congregation gathered here right now, I understand and know and, and have full confidence that you see every single heart that's represented here today. You and you alone know what is the condition of our hearts, the condition that we walked into this building with, the condition that we now sit to hear your word preached. And I pray, Lord, that you and you alone would ensure that every heart that is here today, if not already having been transformed, would be transformed. That your grace would be so made known to them, would be so revealed to them, would be so evident in them, that they would see the condemnation that your law brings to us, but the great release and relief that your grace brings to us. Lord, you say that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
Lord Jesus, you are the very one who has come to bring that grace. You are full of grace and truth. We pray that you would now shed that grace and truth upon us. We pray, O Lord, that we would have a better understanding of what it is to be in Christ after we walk away from this passage. And that not only would that understanding permeate our thinking, but that understanding would transform our living as well. That we would increasingly have compassionate hearts toward others and hearts that love you more than anything else. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When we first moved into our house just a little over three years ago now, though it was before we moved in, we discovered that we had a problem, a problem with the water. Our well was contaminated with E. coli, which I found to be quite repulsive being a city boy, never having lived on well water before, thinking about how that E. coli got there. It kept me up a few nights until I determined I was no longer going to think about that. Thankfully, by God's grace, he's given us the technology and the wisdom to be able to fix problems like that. And so we had a filter put into our water system before we moved into the house that eliminated that problem. But... In addition to having a filter put on our home that eliminated that problem so that what came into the house was now clean, we also had to clean the source of the problem itself. And so we got the source taken care of as well by eliminating the problem of the E. coli. And now we have a backup that makes sure that if the source ever returns, ever corrupts itself again, that the filter that we have on the home we'll make sure that the water that we drink is no longer polluted, but is clean and safe for us to drink. You understand the realities that it was necessary to clean up the problem, but you also understand the reality that if we did not address the source of the problem, then we really did not address the problem itself. This is what religion fails to understand. Whether religion would be called Islam, religion would be called secular humanism, religion would be called traditionalism, religion would be called self-worship, whatever you would want to call religion, by religion what I mean is anything other than faithful biblical Christianity. Christianity and Christianity alone presents the biblical truth that the problem that we have is not outside of us. But the problem that we have is on the inside of us. And so while religion tries to strive for external conformity through things like a daily practice of prayer, perhaps, fasting, perhaps, rigorous reading of whatever they hold to be their scriptures, the Quran, for instance, or even the Torah, Whatever the external conformity is, religion says what you need to do is fix yourself up, clean yourself up, get yourself right. 
And you can see that reality displayed then in the world that poses itself as not religious, as irreligious. The atheist world, for instance, the secular atheist world. Every productivity book you will ever read gives you certain guidelines and certain principles so that what is on the outside of you, your wake-up habits, for instance, your reading habits, for instance, your schedule habits, for instance, all seeks to address the outside. The reality is the outside needs to be addressed, doesn't it? But what Christianity goes for, what the Lord Jesus Christ teaches, is that if you are to address what really defiles a person, What really makes a person unclean, what really makes a person unfit to be in the presence of God, then where you must focus is not on the outside, but where you must focus begins on the inside, with your heart. This is what the Pharisees and the scribes failed to understand time and time again. And this, in fact, was the religious heir of the day for all of Israel. So that when Jesus came preaching a gospel that said the king was here, that they needed to repent of their sins and believe the message that he preached, and then when he moved to touch people that were considered to be unclean and eat with people that were considered to be defiled, it was appalling to everyone who wanted to follow the traditions that had been handed down to them for centuries by this time. Jesus comes and preaches a message that was completely countercultural in his day. And the reality is that that very same message is completely countercultural today. And that while Christianity may have or rather ideas may have absorbed the name of Christianity. It may have been twisted in some ways to get us to focus on the externals. The reality is that the focus must always be inside of us, that the problem starts not with those people that vote the wrong way, those people that are attracted to the same people as them, those people that don't know how to speak the language, those people that want to change everything that we have ever established. While the, the problem wants to, or the, some people want to say focus on that as the problem, the reality is people vote the way they vote because of what's inside of them. People kill who they kill because of what is inside of them. We must never mistake real, authentic Christianity for something that disguises itself and latches on to it. The scribes and the Pharisees did not understand that external conformity was not what made them clean or undefiled before God. They thought, they were convinced, and they were the cream of the crop. They were the examples to all of Israel because the problem was not just with the Pharisees and the scribes, but in fact, the problem was most personified by the Pharisees and the scribes. The problem was widespread throughout all of Israel. The problem that had introduced itself for so long now in the thinking of the people of Israel Jesus calls tradition, 
In fact, it's the very thing that the Pharisees and scribes have a bone to pick with Jesus about his disciples. Why do they violate the tradition of the elders? We understand there's nothing wrong with tradition. In fact, it's right to honor tradition. We walk in the footsteps of those who have come before us. But when tradition moves to traditionalism, then it begins to evidence itself with grave spiritual danger. That's exactly what had happened in Israel. The tradition that had been handed down to them, they had put on par with the word of God itself. Sounds a lot like the Protestant Reformation, doesn't it? You see, this problem was not just with Israel. This problem was not just with Rome. This problem is the problem that natural man faces as we are constantly bent toward legalism, toward a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality that says you can be what you want, you can do what you want, and it all depends upon you. Now, we don't want to contribute to a lazy lifestyle that says you can't be what you want, you can't do what you want, so you should do nothing. The reality is you can't be what you want. You can't do what you want, but you can probably do much more than you think you can do. And when that effort is put into striving to live for the glory of God, then and only then is it put in the right place. So as we think about the reality is of external conformity versus internal transformation versus uh, the, the, the thought of the day, the philosophy of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes as representative of all that was thought about the religious life of Israel. And then we see one man, the God-man, the Son of God, stand against that and say, no, the problem's not outside of you, the problem's inside of you. As we analyze that problem and as we analyze this text, I think it shows us two signs of grave spiritual danger that point us to the transformation that only Jesus can bring. Two signs of grave spiritual danger that put themselves on display, not just with the Pharisees and scribes' way of living, but even with the disciples' mentality as they struggle to understand what Jesus plainly says to them. They even call it a parable. Though it was really just a sentence of statement, a a statement of fact. What are those two signs then of grave spiritual danger? And how will we know? How will we know if we're getting close to the ground of grave spiritual danger? The first sign comes to us in verses 1 to 13. The first sign that you are in grave spiritual danger is when you elevate the wrong thing. When you elevate the wrong thing. Look with me at verses 1 to 13. There's a showdown once again. It's been a few chapters since chapter 2 and chapter 3 when Jesus has faced the Pharisees and the scribes. The last time the scribes appeared, the scribes specifically who had come from Jerusalem, they were the ones that had attributed what Jesus is doing to Satan. And so I remind you of those very things. These are not neutral, innocent questions. This is not a... 
misunderstanding that they're seeking to clarify. This is an all-out assault on Jesus from Jerusalem. And so verse 1 of chapter 7 says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. They see the disciples of Jesus and they, in their thinking, say the master, the rabbi is responsible for his disciples. What they're doing, Jesus must be held accountable for. And they must have thought in the moment, aha, we got him. Last time the Pharisees saw Jesus' disciples violate something, it was supposedly working on the Sabbath because they were walking through a field of grain, they were hungry, they picked some kernels and they ate them. And Jesus confronted them about their lack of compassion because they violated, uh, they violated the heart of the law of God altogether, that, that the commandments of God can be summarized with love God and love your neighbor. But they love themselves and they love to establish their own righteousness, or so they thought, by the way that they obeyed, quote unquote, not only God's law, but their law. And so they see this problem, and their elevation of the wrong thing causes them to look with great scrutiny on the disciples of Jesus. In other words, they're judgmental. When they elevate the wrong thing, just like when we elevate the wrong thing, It creates in a person a spirit of arrogance and pride that looks down on other people and loves to find everything that everybody else is doing wrong. Sadly, that happens more often than it should ever happen in this so-called Christian world. There are entire ministries who love to flaunt their arrogance through blog posts, devoted to finding out everything that is wrong with everybody else. Did you hear what so-and-so said recently? Did you know what's going on at so-and-so's church? And so... In their arrogance, when they elevate the wrong thing, then they they get these blinders on them and they, they dub themselves to be the sort of spiritual police that need to keep everybody else in line. And that was exactly the problem that the Pharisees and the scribes had. So they see the disciples eating with unwashed hands that they considered to be defiled or to be unclean. Now, it's important to understand, and, and we'll see, the, Mark makes this crystal clear. It's not that the Bible said they were unclean for doing what they did, or that the Bible said they were defiled for doing what they did. But it's that the tradition of the elders said they were defiled for doing what they did. When we think today about being defiled, or some of our translations rightly say clean or unclean, we often think of hygiene. What do you tell your kids before dinner time? Go wash your hands. I know you. I know what you've been doing. You've been outside all day long. No telling how many things are living that could contaminate others on your hands. Go wash your hands. But that's not how they thought. Now, certainly hygiene would have been a consideration. But when we see the word defiled or undefiled, clean or unclean, what they're thinking is not in hygienic terms, but spiritual terms. 
They literally thought that if you ate with hands that you had not washed, you were not worthy to be in the presence of God. And so that's the bone to pick that they have with Jesus. And, and Mark explains this in verses three and four, uh, verses three through five, when he gives us three through four, when he gives us this parenthetical explanation, which indicates to us that Mark is writing to Gentile Christians. Verses three to four, he says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly or wash their hands with the fist, holding to the tradition of the elders. I want you to pay attention to how many different times the word tradition is repeated in these first 13 verses. Why do they do that? They do that because they hold to the tradition of the elders, not because the Bible says to do it, but because it's the way we've always done it. It's been said that the famous last words of every dying church, that's the way we've always done it. The last words of the dying religion of the Pharisees, that's the way we've always done it. We wash because that's what we've been taught by the elders. We hold to tradition. We value the, our forefathers. Verse 4 says, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash or, or even baptize, which probably meant not only do they wash their hands before they eat, But after they go and spend some time in the marketplace, because there's dirty people in the marketplace, there's uh, there's defiled people in the marketplace, you may have brushed up against someone who is considered to be unclean. You may have even come in contact with a Gentile. And so when you come from the marketplace, you've got to dip yourself in the ceremonial tank to clean yourself up. It sounds a little bit silly to us, but that was the world that they lived in. And so they, they wash themselves after they come from the marketplace, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So Mark is explaining to us the, the practice of the Pharisees, the conflict that Jesus has with them, and the reality that what the Pharisees were doing was not what God said to do, but was what their elders had told them to do. And verse 5 says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Already three times tradition has been person- or, or repeated. It's been put on display. We can see the setup for the conflict, and we've already read it so far. Jesus will tell them ultimately that in putting their tradition next to the word of God, the law of God, the commands of God, what they have actually done is elevate their tradition above the law of God. Because you cannot, in all practicality, put anything up next to the word of God. You can think that you have put something up next to the word of God, but the moment you share the authority of God's word with anything else than what you have actually done is downgraded the authority of the word of God. And any desire in a corrupt heart to elevate anything on par with scripture will always manifest itself with going to the thing that you find to be easier. 
Maybe not easier in practice, but the thing that the, 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 the air that the Pharisees and the scribes were living under, the, the air of Jesus' day, was that this secondary explanation of the scriptures called the Mishnah was what helped the Jews to put, they called it, a fence around the Torah. The idea was good. We don't want to violate God's law. But then they took that idea and said, because we don't want to violate God's law, what we will do is create our own rules that will keep us from violating God's law. Don't we see that very same problem displayed today? Isn't this the problem that fundamentalism has battled ever since its inception? Don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't date those who do, or whatever it is. Now the reality is there's some, there's some good principles. If you smoke and you chew, you're going to get cancer and you're going to die. But is smoking and chewing really what defiles a person? No. And so you see that the intent was to not break the law of God, but then they took a step away from the law of God by adding on to the law of God the rules of man. So much so that you actually have, I'm jumping forward to today, but you actually have Christians who say things like it's a sin to drink alcohol. Really? Is it Wise or unwise? Well, it could be unwise. Is it a sin? Not according to God. Maybe according to you and the tradition of the elders, but not according to God. Now, that's one easy example. There are so many other examples of what that mentality brings, but this was the spiritual air that the Jews in Jesus' day were breathing. This is what the people had been, crammed down, had been crammed down the throats of the people. The scribes and the Pharisees represent the cream of the crop, those who are sort of in charge. But then there were a whole lot of other people that were living under the burdens of the Pharisees and the scribes. You better do it this way or else you are defiled. And that's what we have to say. And Jesus comes to say, there's a different way. This is not what God ever intended. The law of God is not, is not a, a slave driver. It's not chains to ensnare you. The law of God is the path of life. Obedience to God brings life and it brings joy and it brings delight because it's what God made you for. This is why I don't think Jesus had any, uh, any concern whatsoever with what his disciples were doing. Did Jesus know this was going to cause conflict? Of course he did. Did he stop his disciples from doing it? Of course he didn't. Why? Because Jesus was more concerned with living in the light of his father's face than living in the light of men's faces. Jesus was more concerned with pleasing and obeying and enjoying his heavenly father than he was with living according to the traditions that mankind had developed and handed down. That's the heart of this battle. 
That's the heart of every battle that Jesus faces with the Pharisees and the scribes. And that's the heart of the battle that you and I face as we fight for the joy of living the Christian life. It's not drudgery. It's life. And so then, not only did it make them judgmental as they looked on the the disciples, but it also made them hypocrites. Jesus begins to address them in verse 6, and he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus calls them out for what they were doing and calls them what they were being. Hypocrites. We often think of a hypocrite as someone who says one thing and does another thing. And that's not totally what the word meant. The word referred to actors in those days. Rather than putting on makeup to play a role, they would wear a mask to play a role. They would wear a mask, they would play the part, and then of course after the play was over, they would take the mask off and they would be who they really were. It wasn't that the Pharisees and scribes were not zealous. But as Romans 10 explains, they were very zealous, but they were zealous with no knowledge of God. And that's what makes them so dangerous. Zeal without the knowledge of God. And so it wasn't so much that they were saying one thing and doing another thing. What it was was that they were doing what they thought God wanted them to do, but Isaiah hit the nail on the head, and Jesus highlights what he says in Isaiah 29. The reality is they honored God with their lips, but their heart was not in it. And he's about to illustrate this reality by telling them and showing them that they have this practice that they believe that they cannot violate, but that very practice then causes them to not love their neighbor, but in fact to hate their own father and mother. Jesus isn't playing games with them anymore. He calls them what they are. He quotes the scriptures to highlight the reality of what they're doing. And then in verse eight, he just plainly says it. You're leaving the commandment of God for the tradition of men. And then in verse 9, verses 9 to 13, he gives an illustration of what he means by leaving the commandment of God and holding to the tradition of men. He says to them, verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You notice first they left the commandment of God, now they reject the commandment of God, and then down in verse 13, they make void the word of God. Some of our translations say something like, uh, you set aside the commandment of God, and, and that's not wrong, it's just not strong enough. The word really is you reject. You reject the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Jesus calls it like he sees it. You've actually rejected the commandment of God. Why had they rejected the commandment of God? In order to establish their tradition. Why would someone do that? Because they're prideful. Because they think that by their own effort, 
they can make their way to God. Because they rely not on what God does for them, but on what they do for God. And so Jesus calls it like he sees it. And then he gives an example of what this looks like. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Jesus highlights what Moses said, contrasts it with what they said, and gives them an example of what he means by what he said. He says, the scriptures clearly tell you, Moses clearly says, honor your father and mother. And if you revile your father and mother, then you must surely be put to death. You must die. But he says, what you do instead is develop this practice called Corban, which is a transliteration from the Hebrew word meaning for vow or offering. The idea was that anything was, that was vowed to God or offered to God was strictly for God and God alone, which is absolutely right. It's established in the book of Leviticus. But what they did was they took the idea of something being vowed to God, offered to God, earmarked for God, we might say, so that they could take their possessions, their objects, and their money. And when their parents got too old to make their own income, rather than care for the financial needs of their parents, they could say, sorry, mom and dad, it's devoted to God. I can't give it to you. That's what Jesus is condemning them for. So he's saying you've left the word of God. The word of God commands you to honor your father and your mother. But you have found a loophole in the word of God, he's saying. You love your stuff so much that you say it's devoted to God. And if we take it away from, if we move it out of the category of Corban, that which is devoted to God, then we'll be in trouble with the law. And we'll now become, undefi- become defiled and unclean by our very practice. There, this was a debated issue, but there were many, many rabbis and many officials that would have enforced a penalty for anyone to move anything out of the designation of Corban given to God, even if it meant having mercy for your own parents. You see, they had completely rejected the word of God, hadn't they? The word of God created for Israel a culture that reflected the heart of God, a culture of compassion, a culture of mercy, a culture of love. But what they had done through love of self was created a legal loophole that said we can do anything we want with our stuff and we can keep it as long as we want. We don't even have to take care of our parents because it's devoted to God. And so then in verse 13, Jesus puts the nail in the coffin. He describes what they were doing as making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. 
In other words, Jesus picked one example and could have kept going. This was one way in which they made void or they nullified the word of God. They essentially said, God, our tradition is more important than your command. But they did it in a sneaky way. Well, God says anything vowed to him needs to stay vowed to him. We vowed this to him. So if I could break my vow and take care of my parents, I would, but I can't break my vow to God. You see why Jesus called them hypocrites. Why later he will say to them, on the outside you're a whitewashed tomb, on the inside you're full of dead man's bones. You don't care even about your own parents, Jesus is saying. And in that particular culture, that would have been the most, the worst offense that you could ever do to not honor your father and your mother. And so the first sign then of grave spiritual danger is reflected in the Pharisees and the scribes elevating their tradition over the scriptures. Anytime we elevate the wrong thing, whether it be tradition or or patriotism or anything, anytime we elevate it over the scriptures, that is always a sure sign of spiritual danger. Be careful. Be careful. But then he gives them a second sign of grave spiritual danger, and it's in his explanation in verses 14 to 23. The second sign is when you evaluate in the wrong way. When you evaluate in the wrong way. They evaluated what was on the outside. Jesus says, no, you've got to evaluate what's on the inside. Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand. So picture this. It seems based on what Mark is saying that there's a direct confrontation with Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes. They're probably circled around him and they're looking at why his disciples are eating with unwashed hands. And by this time, most likely it's gotten a little bit heated. I mean, have you ever called someone a hypocrite to their face? It gets heated. Not that I would know. By this time, it's probably heated, and a crowd has gathered, and they're watching. Because this this teacher from Nazareth teaches like no one else they've ever experienced before. There's something to what he's saying. He's proved it by his ability to heal, by his ability to cast out demons, by his ability to walk on water and to multiply bread and fish. There's got to be something to what this guy's saying. But all that they know is what the Pharisees and the scribes have always said. The tradition of the elders. The people of Israel were just like the people everywhere else. They just followed what everybody else told them to do. And so the crowds gather around. The, the scenario, the showdown is happening face to face with Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. But then for his explanation of the problem, Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, hey, gather around. Come on in, everybody. Bring it in. I've got a lesson to teach you, and it's a very important one. You'll notice he gives them two commands. Hear me, all of you, and understand. Hear me, which takes us back to Mark chapter 4. The one who hears. 
and also the indictment of the Pharisees and the scribes of those who hear but don't really hear, who seek to understand but don't really understand. Jesus tells them to hear what he's saying and to understand what he's saying because what he was saying was so controversial to them, but so biblical, so true. This is what would eventually get him killed. Saying true things that everybody else, or not everybody, but the majority of the people thought were absolutely unfounded and untrue. When you stand on the word of God, it will always get you in trouble with people who stand on their traditions. And so Jesus gathers them around and says, what I'm about to tell you is going to rock your world. In verse 15, he says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. We read that and we go, okay. I mean, I've I've heard that ever since Sunday school when I was a kid. They hear that and they go, what? What are you talking about? The law of God requires us to perform certain things in order to be ritually clean. But Jesus is beginning to explain to them that he had come to fulfill that very law. And that for now, now for all of those who are in him by faith, nothing outside of them makes them unclean. Verse 17 then, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples what he did not explain more fully to the people. Verse 17, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. This fits with what Mark has already told us in Mark chapter 4, verses 33 and 34, that Jesus taught publicly in parables, but then privately he explained everything to his disciples. But I tend to wonder if Jesus really meant this as a parable. Is it really parabolic to say there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him? Is that really a parable? I don't know that it is. Now, I might be wrong, but isn't that a clear statement? And I think this is why Jesus says what he says to his disciples in verse 18. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? In other words, don't you get it? We're moving into a section of Mark that began with uh, the hardened hearts of the disciples not understanding about what Jesus did with the bread. We're moving into a season or a, a section of Mark where the disciples start to go the wrong way. They, they understand Jesus less and less. But do you know what's so crucial They keep walking with him. They might not understand what he's saying. They might be dull and unable to get it, but they're still there. I don't know about for you, but for me, that is so encouraging. Because I'm pretty dull a lot of times. I have so many questions about the Bible and about the Lord. 
I ask the Lord questions all the time and I, I say, Lord, I don't understand. Help me. But I keep walking. Isn't that the experience of so many people that encounter Christianity and walk with Jesus for a little while? They, they have questions and they seek answers to those questions. But then eventually something pops up into their life and the question becomes for them such a deal breaker that they walk away from Jesus. It's not wrong to have questions. It's not wrong to not understand. It's wrong to let that lead you to walk away from Jesus. Jesus patiently teaches them just like he has done every other time. Just like he does for you and I. He patiently teaches. And so he says to them, don't you get it? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Not only does not, but it can't defile him. Well, why not, Jesus? Why can't what goes on the inside from the outside, why can it not defile me since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Or the Greek literally says, it enters his stomach and it goes into the latrine. I think the legacy standard has updated that that to say, goes into the sewer, which is literally what Jesus is saying. He's saying, the things that the Pharisees and scribes are telling you make you unclean, you put them in your mouth, You begin the digestive process by chewing them up. You swallow them down into your stomach, which does its thing, and passes it to the, is it the small intestines or the large intestines? Small intestines. I'm a preacher, not a biologist, or whatever whatever that is. Then goes into the large intestines, and I'll spare you all the details of everything else, but you know what happens. It does its job, and it comes back out. You got it, good. So Jesus is saying the problem is not with what you eat because the problem is your heart. What you eat in a spiritual sense does not affect your heart. In a physical sense, you understand it does. This is what Jesus is trying to explain to them. Mark adds for all of us Barbecue-loving Gentiles, thus he declared all foods clean. Amen. And all God's bacon lovers said amen. (laughs) That's right. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. It's not what goes in, Jesus says. It's what comes out. But it's not just that it comes out. It's where it comes out from. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within And they defile a person. 
You see, the Pharisees and the scribes and the people of Jesus' day, even down to the disciples, were taught to evaluate what is on the outside to determine what is clean and unclean. But Jesus is telling them, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. You need to begin with the inside. That's where your evaluation has to begin. And it goes all the way to the core of who you are, to your heart. In biblical thinking, the heart is your processor. It's the center of your soul. It's not just the thing that pumps blood to your body. It's the thing that is responsible for everything that you think and do and say. Jesus says that the problem is not with what is on the outside of you. The problem is worse than that. The problem is all the way to the very core of who you are. That's controversial. That's controversial. You, You try to offer that biblical wisdom to the world today, and it's still controversial. The world looks at the outside. Well, the problem is we don't have enough homes. So we need to build enough homes, and then we need to get people in there. And then what happens when we build enough homes? Well, it turns out that not everybody even wants to live in a home to begin with. So then the problem must be something else. The problem must be drugs. What we need to do is legalize or decriminalize just enough drugs so that people don't go to prison, but we can actually then get them into rehab centers. But it turns out it doesn't work. Surprise, surprise, right? And then faithful Christians stand up and say, "Uh, excuse me, I think I've got a better solution, and it actually comes from Jesus. While homelessness is a serious problem, Drugs are a serious problem, and Christians should be the first ones doing something about those problems. Christians understand that that's just the fruit of a problem that comes from a corrupted root, the heart itself. Jesus is saying this to his disciples. Think about that for a moment. They're thinking, okay, what defiles is not on the outside, good. I can eat whatever I want. And then Jesus says, yeah, but the problem is that what defiles you is on the inside of you. It's your heart. And then they're thinking, what? I'm the problem? What am I supposed to do about that problem? What hope can I have? I mean, I can avoid certain foods, I can make sure I wash my hands properly, but what am I supposed to do if the problem's on the inside of me? That's the point exactly that Jesus is making. There is nothing you can do about that problem. Jesus has come as the one and only one who can deal with that problem and does so definitively by giving you a new heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What's the most deceitful thing known to man? The human heart. 
This is why David, after his exposure of his sin with Bathsheba, prays in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Because even in David's day, all throughout the Old Testament, there was always a faithful remnant who understood that the problem was not on the outside, the problem was on the inside, but God had promised to send a Messiah to deal with that problem on the inside. We're naturally bent toward legalism because it's attainable. Sure, we don't do it perfectly all the time, but why is Islam one of the fastest growing religions in the world? Because it gives you things to do. We love things to do. But Jesus Christ says, no, it's not about what you do. It's about what I have done for you. What you need to do is to realize your spiritual poverty, your bankruptness before God. The reality that the problem is not outside of you, but the problem is actually inside of you. The problem is you. But Jesus Christ has come to deal with that problem by fulfilling the law in perfect righteousness and dying on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God and rising from the grave to give life to all who believe in him, ascending to the Father's right hand where he waits to come back to gather his saints together to be with him forever. The problem is in us, but the solution is outside of us. In the one mediator whom God has appointed between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This is the glories of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. The problem is your heart, but the solution is a brand new heart when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly why Jesus said, you must be born again if you are to see the kingdom of God. So then, my friend, let me ask you, have you been born again? Is there, has there ever been a time in your life where you realized that while you see all the other problems around you, and you see with 20-20 vision the problems with everybody else, Has there ever been a time when you looked in the mirror of God's word and realized, I'm the problem. My heart is sick. My heart is a sin factory. It pumps out all sorts of evil. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. It pumps out those things. And then you've turned to Jesus Christ as the one who will give you a new heart. So that your heart no longer pumps out what God abhors, but your heart pumps out what God is delighted with. Albeit imperfectly, but you look to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when it will be perfect. When you see him face to face and you will be forever changed into his likeness. 
Has there ever been a time when you realized that? Has there ever been a time when you submitted yourself to that reality? God, I'm a sinner. I'm the problem, God. And so I cling now to the solution, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if there has never been a time like that for you, then that problem remains inside of you. Yet, if you have realized that, even though you struggle with ongoing sin, remember the words of Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, you can't enter the holy places if you're defiled. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That's the joy that you have in knowing Jesus Christ. That defiled heart you once carried around for you in Christ is clean. And although it sometimes gets itself unclean, all you have to do is confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness so that one day, one day you will walk into the very presence of God And you will be greeted to the face of Jesus. And you will hear him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my Father's rest. What a gift it is to be in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in the realities of what you have done for us. We rejoice in the revelation that we could not do it ourselves. And we rejoice in the reality that you have done it for us. Thank you for revealing these things to us, O God. We pray that you would help us to see them in even greater detail. So that they would be even more glorious to us. So that gratitude, thankfulness for the gospel, thankfulness for what you've done would permeate our lives. So that our lives would then be shaped by your grace, shaped by your goodness, shaped by your mercy. So that compassion would flow out of us as you always intended it to. So that we would rightly reflect the internal change that you have caused us through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, once again, that you would grant faith to those who have not had it. That you would open their eyes and that they would come even now to receive the forgiveness that Jesus so freely gives. Help us to live in it, and oh God, help us to enjoy it forever. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Call the ushers forward now for our offering. This is a time when we give thanks to the Lord for all that he has given to us, and we reflect that in our giving to the Lord. If This is also the time to put in your prayer requests we would love to share those and, and share your burdens of praying for you with, with you through those.
This is also a time for us to meditate upon the word of God as we have just a few minutes as the men pass the plates. Let me offer a word of prayer and thanks to God for these gifts. Oh God, we thank you that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift, that you are not stingy, though you had every right to be. We are not worthy of anything from you except your wrath. But in Jesus, we get everything from you. We thank you for the gift of your love, and we pray, Lord, that we would always enjoy in that love and bask in that love and reflect that love to others. Use these gifts that we are about to give so that that love in the gospel of Jesus Christ might be made known more fully. It's in his name we pray. Amen.